and I'm Shruti Shri and welcome to Climactic Conversations. Climate change is complex. This podcast simplifies the science policy interface of climate change. It discusses how climate change impacts us and addresses the fundamental questions that are relevant to people's lives, businesses, governments and other stakeholders. Each episode aims to communicate the science of climate change and will focus on topics relevant to the sixth assessment cycle of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC. The podcast is in close collaboration with the Global Centre for Environment and Energy and the Stepwell Radio at Ahmedabad University. Listen on Google Podcast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's episode of Climactic Conversations, we have with us two experts. Firstly, we have Dr. Safran O'Neill, who is an associate professor in geography at the University of Exeter in the UK. Her research explores the social science dimensions of climate variability and change, particularly focusing on communication and public engagement. Her research specialism is the visual communication of climate change. We also have with us Dr. Roz Pitcock, who is a writer, editor, and climate change communications specialist. She was formerly the deputy editor of Carbon Briefs, head of communications for Working Group 1 of the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, and currently she's senior program lead at Climate Outreach. In her current role, her main interests are supporting climate experts to engage different audiences with their work, enhancing public engagement with climate change, and promoting the role of scientific evidence in policy making and public discourse. In this episode of Climactic Conversations, Communicating Climate Change, Dr. Pitcock and Dr. O'Neill are in conversation with Mr. Shaurya Patel about their journey in the field of climate change communication, their experience at the COP26 summit, and their opinion on the future of discussion around climate change. Mr. Shaurya Patel is an urban and climate researcher at the Global Centre for Environment and Energy at Ahmedabad University, and his focus areas are climate change in cities, urban science and design, policy making, sustainable development, climate mitigation and communications. Now that we've gotten to know our speakers, let's take a look at what they have to say. First and foremost, I would like to thank you both for joining us on this podcast. It is an absolute joy to have you both with such an amazing work background and experiences. Let me first get things started by asking you both one of my favorite questions, especially with regards to climate change communication. So, uh, Safran, the question is to you. Can you briefly tell us what inspired you to work in the area of climate change communication? Uh, okay, well, I guess I've been really interested in the environment from being a really small child. My parents love to tell me about how I'd have like a wormery in my bedroom. You know what that is? You know, a jar full of different types of soil and leaves and things and just be fascinated by the science of like soil and how the worms incorporated that. And really it, that interest in the environment and how humans are in their environment has carried through to where I am now. 
Um, I did an undergraduate in geography and then a PhD that was meant to be all about climate change modelling and science. And halfway through that PhD, it became clear that really the interesting questions weren't to me about the science of climate change, but were about how people um, deal with the information once they've got it. How is it communicated? How can we engage people with climate change? What does climate change mean to people um, in their everyday lives? So that's how I ended up where I am now at the University of Exeter. Okay, great. Uh, Ross, would you like to add on the similar question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a strangely similar story, um, as I think it is for a lot of people who end up in climate change communication. Um, I started off in science, um, so I did a PhD in oceanography. Um, and similar to Saffron, I think about halfway through, or perhaps not even half, that's a bit generous, probably in the first week, um, I realised that although I did have a deep appreciation for the science what I really enjoyed was the communication of it and thinking about the real world relevance why would people care about this why should they care about it and I enjoyed all the presentation elements of, of um, doing research um, so I then after I finished my PhD I went um, into climate change communication and journalism um, and I think what I've um, what I've kind of gone into the particular strand if you like um, is supporting climate scientists to communicate their work a little bit more widely and I think having spent a lot of time in research I like to keep one foot in research and have the other foot um, in climate change communication and try and bridge some of that um, the, the gaps um, perhaps um, between between research and, and perhaps the real world application of it. Oh, this is very interesting since both of you have a common sweet point so is it, do you have any reference or uh, one particular trigger that led you to shift your field from science to directly to the, like one specific incident or the, if you can recall any of that? I think for me, it was a, a slow realisation or perhaps a, a, a quick realisation. I'm not sure. It just seemed sort of a natural um, progression for me. I don't remember one particular incident other than I liked all the things that people didn't like doing during a PhD, like presentations. I really enjoyed writing my thesis. That was by far the best bit. Yeah, for me, it's um, kind of similar to Roz that it was um, a realisation through the first part of the PhD. Also, I think I've reflected it to my supervisor, Professor Mike Hume, who's now at Cambridge, and he went through uh, this kind of transition from thinking about climate change, being a climate scientist, thinking about climate change as a social issue to now you know even into climate and humanities so that was at the point where mike's work was shifting towards social science and he i, re I remember him telling me about a meeting he had at defra which is the uk's department for environment food and rural affairs where he was just kind of going well hang on a minute but what we really need to know about is how people value these things and that's what makes a decision tricky about climate change it's actually not whether we get one centimeter or ten centimeters of sea level rise by x date so, um, yeah, I think there was a, a kind of shift in thinking for quite a lot of people. It is really common, I think, to find people who work on climate change communication started off as physical scientists and swapped to the dark side of social science. <laughs> on a similar note, uh, recently you co-edited a special issue on climate change communication in Climatic Change Journal. This included the contribution from a wide range of authors affiliated with Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, or IPCC. Can you briefly tell us key insights from this work? I think I'm going to hand to Roz, because she is our comms expert. She can give you our key points. Well, I, I think, um, thank you. Uh, well, firstly, I think it was just, it's worth um, just celebrating the fact that the IPCC had so much involvement with this special issue, because we... Um, as an editorial team, Saffron and I 
um, approach this as completely independently from the IPCC. And we were hoping that we would be able to get um, some involvement from them. But I don't think we ever really imagined that we'd have the level of engagement that we did. Um, so Jonathan Lynn, who's the head of communications at the IPCC, really thought this was such a valuable idea to begin with. Um, and I think he was probably quite key in um, spreading the message throughout the rest of the IPCC that this was an opportunity, firstly, to um, publish some of the things, some of the advances in communications that had happened um, in the six assessment cycle, so for the past five or six years, uh, because there have been a lot of changes. Um, the IPCC has, over time, really recognised not only the value of communication, but the necessity of it, the requirement, the responsibility that they hold um, as the world's leading scientific authority on climate change to communicate it well, um, as well as the science itself. So the, there's a really key contribution in there from Jonathan Lynn and his team um, that celebrates some of the advances uh, that have been made. And then there's separate papers about some of those things. So, for example, the way that the frequently asked questions are used as an educational resource um, and a, a really accessible way of summarising some of the key concepts for a non-specialist audience. There's also huge progress that's been made in the visual sides. So the IPCC has often been criticised in the past for very inaccessible, very hard to understand visuals with just way too much information packed in there. Um, and the last couple of IPCC reports, uh, we've seen the IPCC work with data visualisers to really try and understand better what the audience are looking for and to focus on the key messages and really pull those out through the visuals as well. So that at the same time, they're thinking about key messages in the SPM through things like uh, the headline statements. They're also thinking about the visuals. Um, so it's it's been really wonderful to have some of those documented. But what the special issue also did um, through the engagement with with IPCC voices is really demonstrate how much the IPCC wants to grow and embrace all the evidence and, and social science research base that's out there and best practice around the world and um and and hear and listen to its audiences about what works um in terms of communication and engagement and really really bring it in really trying to embrace some of that so i think we were really pleased with with how with the signal that we think this sends um from the ipcc that they're they're really wanting to improve their communications um and, and really up for the challenge Lovely. Uh, Saffron, would you like to add anything on it? Mm, yeah, I, I think I'm not sure whether Ros in her introduction remembered to say that. So Ros's past um, work as uh, IPCC Working Group One um, Communication Specialist. So it was really brilliant to work with Ros. So we were an act academic practitioner team. So I research on climate change communication. I'm a social scientist and, and Ros um, is an expert in the kind of um, well, using that social science, but really using it in the practical world, you know, bringing together scientists and others talk about climate policy and, and you know, have better communication of science reports and so on. So it was really great to have Ros because she had all these links to IPCC and um, and we had this brilliant engagement as Ros has outlined through uh, many IPCC um, within the IPCC, which was just great. But we should say that actually um, that was a, maybe a third of the contributions of the papers that we had to the topical collection. And actually, the, the rest of them were people who are independent of IPCC, who weren't involved in the IPCC process, but still had something to say. Um, and of those papers, they broadly split actually into three different types. So the first sort of group of papers were ones that um, uh, 
really explained or went into a lot of detail to talk about the, the real novel, innovative steps IPCC are taking to make reports more engaging and accessible. Um, and it's really fabulous to see um, those things coming through, like Ros described on the visuals, which is actually my specialist area of research. Really good to see that written up and talked about and, you know, barriers and how they've been overcome. And then there's a second group of papers, which kind of slightly more challenging to IPCC around things like, for example, how IPCC deals with social media um, and how actually what happens in the social media world or on a social media platform can impact other types of um, communications activities, like things that happen in what, you know, the legacy media, newspapers and TV. Um, uh, so they're, you know, more challenging. And then the third kind of group of papers, and we didn't pre-select for these. These came out after peer review. Um, uh, the third group of papers are much more challenging to the fundamental basis of the IPCC. Whose knowledge counts? Who has a voice at IPCC table? Um, uh, what sorts of voices do we hear in policymaking and which ones are excluded or not heard, marginalised? So they're much more challenging to the way that IPCC works and about more than communication. They're about fundamental engagement on climate change. So, yeah, broadly speaking, they're the three different types of papers that we had. And altogether, they make up, I think, I hope, a really vibrant contribution to the climate communications kind of discourse. It is indeed definitely uh, awakening and very critical about certain ways IPCC uh, communicates the uh, climate science. So I still remember I was part of the launch of uh, topical collection at COP26. So how was your experience at the conference of uh, parties in Glasgow? since you both were present over there? It was so much fun to be part of COP26. Uh, it was lovely to have it so close to home that we could actually be part of it. Um, so we're very lucky to have, to have had it in Glasgow this time. Um, I think it was a bit of a whirlwind. I don't know about you, Safran, but I look back on it as, as it sort of feels like a like a little bit of a dream. We sort of, we, we, um, we were only there for a couple of days. Uh, we sort of dropped in. Um, we were working hard on uh, presentation, uh, sorry, on preparation for our launch event, um, going to find the, 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 the venue, seeing how everything would work, make sure all of our, our panellists were, were ready and the tech was running smoothly and everything. Um, and then we, we had this really fantastic launch event, which was a really great opportunity, I think, for us to um, showcase some of the great research that we have in this topical collection and also just bring people together and um, and, and, and it was only an hour and a half long, so I think we probably could have talked um, all day about this topic and so could many others. But just to have a little opportunity to, to, to provide a bit of a window into the kind of research that's out there and start a few conversations going. Um, and I think we realised that this that that was really to begin a lot of conversations, hopefully. Um, there's no way that we could resolve any of these big questions for the IPCC in the room. Um, but hopefully it's providing a little bit of an impetus or a bit of momentum perhaps to take these conversations a bit further. Um, so it was lovely for me personally, it was lovely meeting up with some former IPCC colleagues um, and just being around the, the sort of the buzz of COP. If you haven't ever been to a conference of the parties, it's quite a strange um, experience. And I've only been to one. I was uh, there um, at, at the Paris conference um, in a slightly different capacity as a journalist. Um, but Saffron, actually, this was your first COP, so perhaps you've, you've got an even more kind of interesting first-timer perspective. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Ross. It was really intense, like almost overwhelming, you know, this. And the other thing, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic or we're still in the pandemic. And I, you know, for various reasons, haven't have been shielding or, you know, keeping uh, away from very busy places for the last year and a half. 
so it was quite a shock to go from the very rural area that I live to you know 20,000 people in a conference centre um though wonderful to talk to so many people who are passionate about climate change and it was really incredible to be there and to be at a COP and you know you work on climate change all your life and it all you know, and it can feel quite disconnected from lots of the things that are going on in the world, um, in your academic world and, um, and you know, your kind of home life or whatever. Um, so that was that was great. But one and it, I mean, it was really I really found our panel inspiring um, the way it kind of fell out. We ended up having an all female panel, which was just great and something that's not usual at a COP, um, reliably informed by Roz uh, and, and many other delegates as well, that this was an unusual thing. You know, we had really um, and we had um, voices from uh, around the world. And I was really pleased that I, on our panel that we could have uh, people from the Global South represented who were really key figures in our special issues. So that was really important to us to showcase that expertise. And, and that leads me to something that was perhaps a little bit less rosy tinted than uh, what Ro Ros was saying. And that's that, you know, I really recognise, I think we both do, that that COP was really very exclusionary in a lot of ways. Um, and although it was great for us, um, as global Norse uh, white women to be at the conference, there were many voices that were excluded. So, um, and even you know, um, protesters or um, uh, NGO organisations and so on being able to access the uh, negotiations themselves. So, in some ways, really inspiring, and in other ways, really problematic and emblematic of what we see in climate change and certain types of voices being privileged and others being marginalised. I see that COP has its own barriers. I would like to ask you, what is the biggest barrier you have experienced in your work and how did you overcome these? Oh, good question. Um, or oh, there's often quite a lot of barriers that, you know, uh, that you get to doing your work. I mean, as an academic, you know, gaining funding to do these things, convincing people that actually communication is all important if you do all this science. And it can't be effectively communicated then or, you know, uh, it only reaches certain ears, then um, then that can be problematic. Uh, I'm going to give you a whole list of barriers rather than one. Sorry, that's annoying. Um, uh, you know, another barrier would be and I, I keep talking about this, but the kind of diversity of voices that we see in the climate change debate um, um, and, and how difficult it is to kind of, you know, try and open that discourse up. And we really hope that the topical collection has has done that a little bit. Um, um, and that we keep seeing more of this and less of the kind of um, helicoptering field work, you know, Global North uh, researchers coming in and just doing extractive field work. So, um, yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's always challenges to doing our research. But we, you know, we're inspired that this is an important area by all the brilliant people that we've been working with um, to keep on with this kind of conversation that we're having with IPCC and others around climate communications. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would I would say something similar. I think rather than perhaps the personal barriers that I've faced, I think it's it's more interesting perhaps just to reflect on the barriers that, that we see um, kind of in this sector and, and and having put together this topical issue um, as Saffron outlined. You know, I think I think I think there's there's so much need to widen the diversity uh, within the pool of spokespeople that we have on climate change. Um, and I think we try to do that in our own sort of, you know, to the best of our ability with this topical collection. Um, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's a it's the same old um, problem where we see perhaps event organisers or, or journalists or, or journal editors or um, anyone looking for spokespeople on climate change. They really can, tend to go to the same people. There's a lot of same faces and same voices. Um, and for those people, um, that reflects a certain privilege and visibility that they have. And it 
it perhaps hones their skills and and you know establishes them more in their career but it that kind of um sort of you know it's quite a lazy approach actually to to looking for space people and the, the the kind of diversity that that is there in the climate sector um and it, it overlooks um a lot of up-and-coming or early career researchers um research in developing countries and global south who fight who face far more barriers um to getting themselves heard getting their visibility getting published um all the rest of it so i think we all as a sector really need to work harder to make sure that we're doing what we can to, to widen that diversity, widen that pool in the first place, and then also encourage um, the media and, and other other sectors who look for voices on climate change to, um, to really understand that that diversity is there and to seek it out. Oh, that is wonderful. Uh, I, would, I would like to ask you a slightly difficult question. Uh, do you see this as a story of hope or despair? It's, that is a real classic question that you get, Shaurya. Uh, um, when you're interviewed about climate change, perhaps you found this yourself. Is that is it? Is it all doom and gloom? You know, and I, I've done empirical work on how people think about climate change and the images of climate change that can make us feel um, like full of despair um, and you know that there is no hope and so on. And I think it's really important that there is always hope. There is there are climate change solutions. Um, uh, there is a, a huge amount of work going on and a lot of committed people behind, you know, making things happen. Um, so it, it isn't either hope or, dis uh, or despair. It's not uh, it's not this kind of binary thing. It's there's this grey in the middle is the bit that's important. Where are where are the things that we're working to that we can see common ground? You know, what are the kind of sustainable visions that um, that we uh, that we can create together? Um, what are the kind of communities that we want to live in? The kind of well-being and health issues that we want to come to the fore. Um, those are the things I think people can coalesce around and which provide hopeful visions of the future. Yeah, I mean, I would agree absolutely. It's not a binary, you know, either or. I think I think anyone who 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 works in climate change or is, of course, affected by climate change can flip flop between those two emotions quite easily. You know, it's a, it's a continuum. But but also, I think it's probably worth saying. Um, you know, despair in the sense of, oh, it's just too big. I don't know. I don't know how to tackle this. I can't deal with it. You know, that's actually, in some ways, that's quite a privileged position to have. You know, there's lots of um, just communities, countries all around the world for whom tackling climate change, the difference between one degrees, 1 1.5 degrees, two degrees, is a matter of life or death. And it's it's just a case of survival. It's existence. It's we must do something about this. We have to have hope here. We have to understand the solutions. We have to find the solutions. We have to persuade the rest of the world um, to, to come along with us. Does the narration of gloom and doom changes based on the generations? Like if a young, if you're looking at people who are very young versus people who are in the 80s or 90s, have you ever experienced that kind of change between their own perception? I don't think there's any empirical work that looks at like climate, how people think about climate change across the life course. That would be really interesting. And all either doing that by, you know, by age groups or by following people through their lives and seeing um, both of those would be really interesting research projects. Perhaps that's one for you to do in a PhD, Shara. Um, <laughs> but maybe not the, the one through the life course, because that's a pretty long PhD process. Um, but the, 
Um, I think what you can say is that there is a lot of climate anxiety around um, in young people. Um, some um, colleagues uh, I know at the University of Bath in the UK released a big global survey that looked at climate anxiety. It was in the news a month or a couple of months ago. Um, and uh, we've got to recognise that, you know, there is a, a lot of young people do feel really quite despairing about the situation facing their, their generation. Um, uh, there's there's a lot to be said for um you know, empowering people to change and, and making sure that um, those voices are heard. I think a lot of that despair comes from not feeling like their voices are being heard. So, um, yeah, it's it's I don't know whether you could compare, say, a 90 year old and a nine year old and see what the difference is per se. But I, I think it is fair to recognise there's a lot of um, climate anxiety in, in young people. And that, you know, is a, something that we really need to take on board. Uh, so heading to the last part where I would like to uh, ask you uh, if, is there any one final thing that you would like to say on how to talk to audience about climate change? Do you want to go wrong? Um, I will answer very, very quickly, um, which is just to say that a lot of my work involves supporting climate scientists to talk to audiences. And so one thing that's really important, I think, there um, is to talk about your experiences, your perspective as a person, as well as a scientist. You know, your audience trusts you because you have knowledge and expertise, but that's really only part of it um, to really connect with the audiences. Um, they want to see who, who you are, um, why you work on climate change, how it makes you feel, um, if there's any particular part of your work or moment in your life that things change for you um, just bring in your, your your own experience and perspective um, and and really show the audience who you are as a person um, and that that warmth and authenticity will will just make such a difference um, to the audience listening to what you have to say yeah and following from that there's been um, there was a really interesting paper a couple of years ago by a woman called Zoe Leviston who's a, a psychologist in the in Australia called something like your opinion on climate change is more common than you think and i think that many people think that climate change um you know other people deny climate change or don't think it's happening or you know are going to be very skeptical about proposed solutions and actually um uh, that's that's a kind of a capture of the discourse by a certain very small minority of of the debate um so what i'd say is that having that conversation is really important and kind of being brave um and um saying you know i think climate change is something that we need to deal with um you know blah 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 this is how it, it, it impacts me like Ros was talking about so i live in a in a rural area there's lots of farmers you know who have been or can be very skeptical about proposed solutions and actually they farmers have a huge amount of knowledge about climate change you know about how how the weather impacts um their their everyday lives and they have good reasons that they're skeptical about these things um but i think when you have start having these conversations you realize you're not actually diametrically opposed you have a lot of things in common about you know caring for the environment looking after the natural world um and that there is room for agreement and movement on on things that um are, are directly or indirectly about effectively climate policy uh, this is fascinating conversation uh i would like to wrap up and thank both of you to spend your time and give us a wonderful insight about the challenges that climate communication is still facing and might face eventually but thank you both Oh, thank you. Yes, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you.
That was truly a wonderful conversation. Dr. O'Neill and Dr. Pitcock beautifully brought out the importance of not only communicating climate change research accurately and effectively, um, but also the importance of ensuring that there is diversity and inclusion in conversations surrounding climate change and its impacts. Um, so we would like to thank Dr. Pitcock and Dr. Uh, O'Neill uh, for being a part of our podcast. That's it for this episode. We'll see you in the next one.